glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. down through verse 7. Thank you, sir. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not, and the angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, and going after strange flesh, are set forth uh, for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Thank you. You may be seated. If you look at the book of Jude all the way through verse 16, so verses 5 through verse 16, and there's only 25 verses in the entire book, but verses 5 through 16 are specifically devoted to describing these men that he talks about in verse 4. So in verse 4 he says certain men are crept in. Uh, There are certain men crept in unawares, meaning they came in, wicked men, but came in undetected like wolves in sheep's clothing, uh, and these are men that were before ordained of old, uh, of old ordained to this condemnation. God foreordained that men that would reject the gospel uh, would be condemned. There's no other answer outside of uh, the, the pardon through faith in Jesus Christ. And so they are ordained to this condemnation of old. They turn the grace of God. They are ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. We pointed out before when it says they deny him, doesn't mean they deny his existence. It doesn't even necessarily mean they deny what he did. Denying him means they contradict him. They contradict what his word says. And so we see that. We see that taking place right now. There are lifestyles, not only, of course, the LGBTQ, all of that lifestyle being promoted and even supposedly Christianized in the name of love and grace. You can supposedly maintain that lifestyle and a life for Christ at the same time. That is saying, I am a submitted rebel. Those two words don't go together. To live out that lifestyle is, is blatant rebellion against God, yet it takes submission to God to believe the gospel. And so you don't have submitted rebels. What we have is wicked men perverting the gospel and putting a license on something that's vile and sinful. Many things today that the Word of God is clear about that God is opposed to uh, there are men today saying, you know, those who preach against that are mean-spirited and narrow-minded and all those kind of things. Uh, and all that is is, is, a, is a cover for wickedness uh, when, we, when we conceal that, um, this, this licentious living under the guise of grace. And so verse 4, he speaks of these men who've crept in. Verses 5 through 16, he's going to take Old Testament Scripture 
take that and apply it to present tense situations and say, you read about this in the Old Testament, this is the kind of men these are. He's going to use Old Testament examples to portray the kind of men he's talking about. The reason he does that, when we use the scripture, it gives authority. Then we preach with authority. Jude is making it very clear. I'm not pointing these guys out that I don't like. This isn't a personality issue. These are men that if you'll read your Bible, you can see God preserved in his word men like this so we wouldn't be surprised when this happens. And so you can use the word of God as a lamp and a light to see this and expose this. And may I just say this, and I said this at the onset when we started in this end of this book, the kind of preaching, the kind of instruction, the kind of teaching we find in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude and Revelation is frowned at in our day by and large. Frowned at by and large. Because the, the bulk of Jude's epistle is pointing out characteristics that by the time Jude gets done, the people he's writing to are going to be able to attach names to the men he's talking about. They're going to be able to take the information given and see someone that they know that's crept into their midst. Jude was not speaking hypothetically, speaking practically. They're going to be able to take the information that he's giving them by the Holy Spirit of God and say, that's one of the people Jude was talking about. One of the pressures put on preachers and teachers of God's Word today is to keep the giving of God's Word vague. So there is a knowledge, but no knowledge of the truth. I read today that in perilous times... Men who have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Meaning they're constantly adding information but never coming to firm conclusions. That is rampant in our day in the spiritual slash, if you would, religious realm. Folks who have all kinds of Bible knowledge but are not certain of what they believe about anything. Ever learning never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And such are these wicked men like this. God does not want us to live that way. So Jude is going to take, and I'll get into this a little bit more in the message tonight, he's going to take the Word of God, the written Word of God, bring forward some things shown us through the Old Testament Scriptures and make specific application to something these people were going through for the purpose of identifying wicked men so the people he's writing to could know those men are wicked and are not to be trusted. Now, that is not popular, but it's the way of God. So this is how God protects his people from wolves devouring them by exposing that. And so Jude's going to take, again, a number of verses. Tonight, our focus will just be on verses 5, 6, and 7, where he's going to take and give three examples from the Word of God of God pouring out judgment in time past on certain kinds of people and saying it's the same kind of people he's preparing to pour out judgment on at this time as well. So let's consider three things tonight in these three verses. I want to back up, though, to verse 2 because it's going to emphasize what I'm trying to say to you here in the introduction. I want us to be reminded of what Jude's motive is in this. Help me here tonight. You help me kind of think a little bit. When a preacher of God's Word begins to take the Bible to expose wolves in sheep's clothing. So what the Bible does is it pulls the sheep's clothing off so that the sheep knows that's a wolf. He wants to eat me. In our day, when a, when a preacher, an under-shepherd does that, wolves begin to howl. <laughs> and what is it that they howl? They, they say, no fair, you're not allowed to do that. That's wrong. That's, that's attacking people. I can only hear how Jude would be accused if he were doing this in present tense situation. And he is, by the way, posthumously, by the work of the Spirit of God. Jude is still doing his job. 
Someone would say, you are personally attacking. I don't find Jude naming anyone here, though Paul did. Paul named Hymenaeus and Philetus as men that could not and should not be trusted. He named a silversmith, I believe Demetrius, and he was not to be trusted. He told Timothy, there's a time to name men, not because you have a problem with them personally, but because you have a job to protect those that are under your care. Let me put it this way. As a parent, there are certain people, I'm going to tell my children, don't ever be alone with that person. Not ever. Don't be found alone with them. If they try to be alone with you, you let me know. Don't ever do that. That's going to be a rare occasion, but there may be times where I name someone and say, you know what, uh, you, you be sure and you have somebody else with you. Why? Because I'm upset with that person, because I hate that person, or because I love my children. There it is. Jude is not writing out of hatred for the apostates. He's writing out of love for the brethren. We must understand. Look at verse 2. So we're reminded, first of all, as far as an outline is concerned, of the motive that is engaged yeah, that, 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 that Jude is engaging here. He is, in, he is engaged by a motive of love for God's people. In verse 2, he says, Mercy unto you. Mercy is a matter of loving kindness. So mercy unto you and peace and love. Jude says, and remind this, when we went through the first, three, first four verses, we looked at this a verse to be reminded of his purpose for writing, Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. We are reminded what Jude has in mind is he wants them uh, to be spared the harm that would come uh, from uh, from ill. Uh, perhaps, perhaps the word mercy is used. Perhaps these folks should have been a little more discerning. Jude will say, I'm going to remind you of something you once knew. Perhaps they should have been on guard a little bit more. How many times do we need mercy because we weren't quite on our toes spiritually as we should be? You know what? If a sheep gets devoured by a wolf, perhaps he should have used his sniffer a little more to go, you know what, that thing looks like a sheep, but he doesn't smell like one. Well, there's where we need mercy. Mercy in its, in its simplest form is having withheld from us what we are duly deserving of, but mercy can also simply mean loving kindness, the idea of compassion or loving kindness. Jude says, I, I am desirous of you to have mercy and peace and love. And then he's going to go negative on them. But that is still, may I say this, negative content is many times necessary, I say negative, to expose evil is necessary to communicate mercy, love, and peace. I'll say this, when a wolf tears into the sheep, there's no mercy, and there's no love, and there's no peace. And so warning of the wolves, identifying wolves, pointing them out, I believe this, you as a church membership need to be able to take your Bible, you need to be able, this is part of the reason for this series of messages, and when a wolf shows up, you should say, you know what, that's the kind of person that is. Here's a person, whether, you're, whether it's someone who creeps into this church and the membership of the church, whether it's somebody you hear on the radio, somebody you read on the Internet, someone that you watch on a YouTube video, you should be able to listen and say, you know what, here's the pattern they're following. I've, I've had this happen on multiple occasions. I'll start reading someone or hearing them preach or perhaps watching a video of them preach. And when they first start preaching, something inside of me says, ah, something didn't feel right. Perhaps they're not aligned with the right crowd of people. By the way, who you align yourself with tells a lot about you. Who you hang out, there are certain preachers. I'm not telling you they're lost. I'm not telling you they're people of God, but I'm not going to align with them. I don't want to discredit my message, so I don't align with certain kind of preachers. Uh, I don't make a habit of fellowshipping with people that don't use the King James Bible. Uh, that You say you think they're lost? I didn't say that. Don't believe that. I believe they're saved people that do something else. 
But I find that's a problem. There's, there's somewhere a wrong mentality toward the Bible, and I don't want to undercut or undermine the integrity of the position that God has given us His Word and preserved it for us at this time. And so that's an example. I'm not saying, again, you, who you align with. So I might already have a red flag like, eh, that guy's not aligned with, aligned with the right crowd, but what he's saying is true. And what I've often found is I've had men where I've listened to maybe... 80% of a message, and then finally, we've had truth all the way through, and finally at the end, they drop the error. They take all the truth, and at one last minute, boom, here it is. And if you had stopped somewhere in between, you'd say, I had no idea. I thought they were true. My point is this. Men, wolves in sheep's clothing, are clever. Men that are like this are clever. The Bible says they've crept in to among these believers, they crept in unawares. So you know what Jude is doing? He is making the believers aware. So it is my prayer and my hope that we can take the principles that we've looked at in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, we can take the principles and the things that are outlined here in the book of Jude, and when we meet one of these guys, we can say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not allowing you influence in my life because the influence is going to take us away from the Lord in fellowship and going to hinder our ability to serve the Lord and be fruitful. And so then, the motive that Jude had, mercy, peace, and love. Verses 5 through 7, let's notice the method that he employs. In verse 5, he says, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward delivered them that believed not. And the angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness under the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Jude seems not, he's not going in chronological order, or he would have started with the angels, and then he would have went to Sodom and Gomorrah, and then he would have went to the Exodus, but he doesn't do that. So it seems that he's following some kind of a spiritual order, and I think we'll see that in a moment. But here's what he does. The method he employs is he immediately, he wants to start exposing some men that have crept unawares in among them. So what does he do? He turns to the exposition of Scripture. One of the ways, as preachers, the way we learn to use the Bible is studying how people in the New Testament used the Bible they had. They had the Old Testament, and Jude immediately I think there's so much encompassed here. He expects the people he's writing to to be familiar with Scripture. He is referencing the exodus from Egypt. You and I take that from granted, but you know why you're familiar with that tonight? You're familiar with your Bible. Sometimes when I'm in a jail service, I have to ask first, how familiar are you men with the Bible? Sometimes they are not. I I can name a book of the Bible. They don't even know it exists or where it's at. That tells me how I need to communicate with them. But here tonight, in a local New Testament church, it should be assumed, and what Jude is saying is, you once knew this, meaning there was a time when you learned this and were familiar with this. Perhaps they had forgotten it, weren't thinking about it, weren't making application in their life, but he he is reminding them of something they already knew. And what is that? Content of Scripture. He's going to reference the exodus from Egypt and how that everybody that came out, it seemed like everybody was a believer, did it not? But afterward, God destroyed who? Them that believed not. The Bible calls that a mixed multitude. It is referred to as a mixed multitude in two different places. In Exodus 12:38 and Numbers 11, verse 4, God refers to the bunch that came out of Egypt as a mixed multitude. What does that mean? There was a mixture. 
of people who truly believed God and those who pretended to believe God. There were those who said they believed God and there were those who really did. May I say this? I don't think there's any way to avoid that. See, how do you avoid having, having frauds in the midst? You don't. Yeah, can, our Lord and Savior had one of 12. It is not entirely avoidable. What is necessary is for us to identify it and not, uh, not be deceived by it. And so what Jude does, though, is he takes the Bible. We have Sodom and Gomorrah spoken of and recorded for us in Genesis chapter 19. You have the Exodus recorded in the book of Exodus throughout uh, all the way into the book of Numbers. And then the angels that send are referenced either directly or indirectly in numerous places in the Bible. Uh, the angels that left their first estate are alluded to in the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 10, I believe it is, where the prince of, uh, of Persia is, is opposing Gabriel. And that, that estate deals with a, a place of high authority. And it would seem what's being referenced here is the angels that were intended to dwell in heaven came down to earth and started, we know Lucifer did, and started trying to take over and did to some degree the earth. And so then all of these things are things that those who know Scripture are going to be familiar with. The Lord Jesus had spoken specifically of seeing Lucifer fall from heaven like lightning in Luke chapter 10. He said that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels in Matthew 25, 14. John 8, 44, he says that the devil was a liar from the beginning. He's the father of all lies. And so the fall of Satan and the angels with him, it's alluded to, throughout the entire Bible leading up to the book of Jude and then following the book of Jude and Revelation. It talks about Lucifer being cast from heaven and a third of those angels with him, uh, referred to as the third of the stars in heaven. And so Ezekiel talks about the fall of Satan. Isaiah chapter 14 talks about the fall of Satan. And so Jude is gonna, he's going to bring to light a current situation using text of Scripture that's 1,400, 1,500 years old. Meaning this. The, the way, the method of taking the Bible, Bible that was written in time past, it's been said this way, what God has said, God is saying. The Word of God is what? Quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. Here's, here's how we learn how to use the Bible when ministering to God's people. Jude said, I'm going to talk about what, what the, the crowd that come out of Egypt, but I'm going to apply it particularly to your present situation. So he begins with exposition of the Scripture. Then he continues with explanation of the Scripture. So he exposes truth in the Scripture. He says, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. How many of us here tonight know what he's talking about? You remember when they came to Kadesh Barnea and they would not enter in because of what? Hebrews tells us. Unbelief. And what happened? That whole crowd died in the wilderness. The, the gainsayers, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, what happened to them? They were swallowed up in the ground. And so Jude is taking history from the Bible but saying this is the application now. I can only imagine what he'd do today. You can only imagine we would get to this point where he exposes. We have this historical account that he's talking about. And uh, these folks didn't believe the Lord. And so what we need to do is go back and study the, the underlying language and figure out what was said and that's it. No application to us. There's danger. There's danger in preaching that exposes and explains but never applies. Don't lose me here. That's called teaching, but it's not preaching. Jude is doing more than teaching. He wants to inform these people so they can make wise decisions. And so he begins with exposition. 
He points out what took place in the Exodus. He speaks about what took place in Sodom and Gomorrah and what happened with the angels that fell. He says, here's what happened as a result. He'll talk about the judgment that they have come under. We'll say more about that in a few minutes. But then he makes an application. He says, um, I will therefore put you in remembrance, verse 5, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, be, uh, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not, and the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, under the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And what does he say in verse 8? Here's the application. Likewise, also, these filthy dreamers. Who's he talking about in verse 8? The same people he talked about in verse 4. Those that had crept in among them unawares. So there were men presently in the presence of of these believers Jude is writing to, and he's saying they are just like the unbelievers that came out of Egypt. They are just like the angels that left their first estate. They are just like the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. These men are exactly those kind of people. Now, if you knew that one of those people was amongst you, would this change the way you think about them? Well, certainly, that was the intent. Let me ask something. If someone is truly a deceiver, should we think of them as a deceiver or a truth teller? Because that's the truth. What Jude is doing is exposing these men have presented themselves to you as one of you, but they're not. A Christian, a true believer, someone who's preserved in Jesus Christ is not an unbeliever. They're a believer. They are not in rebellion against God's authority. They're submitted to His authority. Uh, they are not, um, they are not people who are chasing fornication and all sorts of immorality. I didn't say they're not tempted with those things. I said that's not they're, they're not given to that. That's what these people were, uh, men who've, who, who, have, who are still in the bond of iniquity, if you would, and yet are pretending that they're not. Here's the point. What Jude does is he takes Old Testament Scripture and says, here's the God of the Old Testament, here's what he dealt with then, and here's what we're dealing with now. And he takes the Bible to expose what was going on in present tense. Exposition of Scripture, explanation of Scripture, application of Scripture. Remember 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And this is no doubt instruction in righteousness. This is no doubt some level of correction to help them see what was going on in their midst. And so uh, we learn here how to use Scripture uh, to serve God's people at least at some level. And so the motive is in verse 2, the method employed, verses 5 through 7. But then the message that is expounded, verses 5 through 7, again, number one, in this we have... I believe a primary message, and that is these are the wicked men, and this is the kind of wicked men you're dealing with. Here's some Old Testament scripture that sheds light on who they are and what they're doing. But that's not all that's dealt with. You know what this tells me? Jude believed in what we would call the infallibility of scripture. He believed in going right to the Bible without need of... May I say this? And, and this is a burr under my saddle this week, so you're going to have to bear with me just a little bit uh, because of battle in the trenches, Okay. But the fact of the matter is, there are those today who believe it's their job to correct Scripture, not be corrected by Scripture. That is out of order. It is not our job to go to the Bible and correct it. Now, if some man has done it damage, get it back to where God wants it to be. But that's not the case with what we're dealing with. 
And so it's when men approach the Bible saying, my job is to become a scholar and correct the Bible, that's perverse, it's twisted. We are now resting the Scriptures instead of the Scriptures correcting us. And so Jude does not in any way, as no one in the Bible you'll ever find doing. The only person I ever find trying to correct or twist the Scripture is Satan. When he tried to use the Bible and tell Jesus, you know what Satan did? He used a proper interpretation and made a false application. He said, it is written, he give his angels charge over thee, lest thou dash thy foot against the stone. So, make God prove that's true by jumping off the pinnacle of the temple. Proper, proper exposition, wrong application. <laughs> you with me tonight? And so then, when you have servants of God dealing with Scripture, I, I have scoured my Bible. I have yet to find a true servant of God ever criticizing the written word. None. I don't find it. And we might say, well, our, our issues with the Bible are unique to that. I'm going to tell you something. When you find somebody that is intentionally or unintentionally working to diminish your confidence in the Bible, look out! Because what they want you to do is trade your confidence in the Bible for confidence in them. That's the opposite. The Apostle Paul said that the Bereans were more noble and that they searched the Scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. Paul said the kind of crowd I was preaching to that was a noble bunch of people were people that knew I, the preacher, was to be held accountable by the Scripture, not the other way about. And so then we find Jude, yet again, another servant of God who had confidence in the infallibility of Scripture. You say, how can you say that? Because it's what he used without apology, equivocation, or explanation. He said, this is what was written, this is what it means. How many of you know that the account he gives here of Sodom and Gomorrah, of the exodus from Egypt, is very definable, and of the fall of the angels, you can find it all right here in your King James Bible. Just as it's said in the book of Jude, you go back in Exodus and Numbers and read exactly what he's talking about. My point is this, God's word hasn't changed in 2,000 years. still says the same thing. That has to do with a great God who knows how to preserve His Word. So He teaches and preaches to them from the standpoint that the Scripture is the authority by which we judge the conduct and character of men. We are not the judges of men. Don't misunderstand me. But if there's a wolf in sheep's clothing, it's going to be by the Bible that you're able to see that. It's going to be by the Scripture that you're going to be able to see their conduct is like the men of Sodom. Their character is like the angels that fell. Their conduct and character is like the same ones that came out of Egypt who pretended they were with the people of God, but in their heart they didn't believe. And so then it's by that we grow in wisdom through the Word of God. And so then the message that's expounded here, first of all, the message that the Scripture is infallible and trustworthy and is intended to be applied in a very practical way. He not only does that, he deals with the immutability of the Savior. Jude, I think, forgot he was living and ministering in the age of grace. He's talking about an angry God that judged people. God doesn't do that in this dispensation, does he? (laughs) The writer of Hebrews forgot it as well when he said, Our God is a consuming fire and is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. The Apostle Paul forgot that under the age of grace, God does not judge when he said that when we are judged, we are chastened of God that we not be condemned with the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Are you with me tonight? Beware of a crowd that's changed the character of God. God's character has never changed. He is still righteous. We would say it this way. The New Testament did not change the character of God. The New Testament was given to change the capability of man. 
Grace is not a change in God's character. He's always been a gracious God. The dispensation of grace gives man the opportunity to repent toward God and to align with his character. It is not a permission to continue in our own character. It's it's an enabling to align with his character. That's what grace does. It redeems us from the corruption we were in and allows us to walk with a holy God. God did not become unholy by grace. So why are we preaching this? Because that is the prevailing message of so many today, that grace was a changing of God's character. You know what Jude is saying? Just as God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, these wicked men are going to be judged. He said they were ordained to what? Condemnation. So my point is this. Jude is preaching to the people he's preaching to the immutability of God. Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. God is still a holy God. God still has wrath towards sin. What he's done is provided for a way to us be part, for us to be pardoned and delivered from his wrath. And it's only one way, and that is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ from a repentant heart saying, God has every right to judge me. He is, a, he is, is appropriate and he is just in saying that I deserve uh, to perish. Nonetheless, he is gracious and merciful in providing pardon for me through the, the death and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the, the message that's expounded here is the infallibility of Scripture. He preaches from the Old Testament, a holy God who judged sin, that holy God had not changed. Remember what he's having to deal with? Men who are turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Our culture today acts like the grace of God means God does not get upset at lasciviousness. Not true. God is calling us to repentance from it and giving us an opportunity in his grace and mercy to be pardoned for it. And so then the message is the infallibility of Scripture, the immutability of the Savior, but this is the primary message. The other two are the underpinning of it. The primary was the illumination of these seducers, the same as John dealt with in 1 John 2.16. said he wrote concerning them that seduced them, them that seduced them. Uh, perhaps you were brought up under the Bible learning what grace was, that grace is the favor of God extended toward you, God's kindness extended toward you unmerited, and that that grace is manifest especially through the giving of Jesus Christ to die and pay for our sins. And that the grace of God has saved us out of sin into a life of holiness, and perhaps something's caught our ears. What happens is the flesh, the flesh is against the way of the Spirit. And these are fleshly men who've never, ever repented of their fleshly deeds and their fleshly way uh, to serve a living God. And so they continue to teach what they believe and what they want, but guising it under grace. And so that's what he's dealing with again. And so in the, in, in the illumination of these seducers, there's a number of things that are going to be pointed out. I said at the beginning, it seems he's not following a chronological order or he would have started with the angels and then moved into the Exodus or then moved into Sodom and Gomorrah and then the Exodus. But instead, he starts with the the Exodus. He says in verse 5, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that what? Believed not. It seems to me he he is putting forward... The, the problem of these apostates, these seducers, the number one problem is they don't believe God. Number one. You know what the number one reason is people... In, you know why our nation is entrenched in the immorality we are entrenched in today? Why homosexuality, sodomy has become commonplace, has been accredited by the state, 
has been recognized by so many, including some things that call themselves churches, as being a legitimate relationship between two people because they don't believe God. What happened is we started saying we can't trust the Bible. We cannot trust the judgments of the Bible. We cannot trust that the Bible even came from God. And we have dismissed the Word of God, dismissed the judgments of God, dismissed the promises of God. Not everybody, or you wouldn't be here tonight. But I'm talking about by and large in our society. And what happens is the first sin of an apostate is he doesn't believe God. Is that not what the children of Israel that came out of Egypt that died? God said, I'll give you the promised land. They said, no, you won't. We don't believe it. It were better we had died in Egypt or better we died in the wilderness. What they did, they called God a liar. And today, the fruit that we are seeing in our land and seeing in our society, in our culture of such vile conduct is rooted in unbelief. We don't believe what God said. There's a host of people that don't believe there's a place called heaven. They don't believe there's a place called hell. They don't believe that the account of the gospel is literal and real and true. They don't believe the miracles. You know where apostasy started creeping into our theological schools when instead of believing simply that Jonah was swallowed by a whale, they say that was allegorical. It means something else. That's where apostasy starts. We don't believe what God said. It starts on back when someone says, well... I'm going to tell you something. This is why theistic evolution and gap theory and all these things are dangerous. You know what it is? It's a seed of unbelief, if not a full-grown plant. It says, you know what? We cannot simply accept what the Bible says, that God created the heaven and the earth in six literal days, evening and morning periods. Amen? If that were a thousand-year periods, I think God would have said so. He said the evening and the morning were the first day. That's the kind of day you and I understand. Instead of accepting a great God, they said, no, it just cannot be so. Unbelief. Unbelief. And so then he starts with the unbelief. That's the sin that's first illuminated. Apostates are disbelievers of God's word. This is why I said, I'm not telling you every person that's wrestling. There are people, not every person that's mixed up in error is an apostate. So we've got to be careful with this because some can be delivered. He'll end the book of Jude that way. Some with, saved with compassion, others with fear pulling them out of the fire. But the fact of the matter is, the apostate is always someone who challenges and questions and, and disbelieves the word of God. Someone who mocks the simplicity of the Bible. Someone who challenges the miracles, so on and so forth. When you find someone that is, that is building their entire message on challenging, questioning, let's put it this way, putting a question mark where God puts a period... That is devilish, it's not of God. It's devilish. Satan put a question mark in the mind of Eve. Can you actually trust God? The apostates are unbelievers. They don't believe what God says. They will company. This is, this is why the picture is put here. All that came out of Egypt were not all believers. So you had unbelievers companying with believers as though they believed. But you know why they murmured? There was a company of people among this group that murmured the entire way through the wilderness. They never believed they were going to go into the land of Canaan. They never believed it. God said it. They didn't believe it. God said, I'll give you water. They didn't believe it. God said, I'll give you manna. They didn't believe it. When God did, they didn't believe it was for their good. They did not trust God. And so then, the apostate is always a disbeliever in the word of God. Number two, they are deceitful in their worship of God. They present themselves as worshipers, but they're not. Again, those that come out of Egypt, how, we worship God by murmuring and calling him a liar? <laughs> no, they, they are false in their worship. They put forward a worship, but their heart is not sincere. Remember, the Father seeketh such to worship him. 
They that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. God is not interested in any of us pretending to worship Him if our heart is not sincere. And, uh, and yet He wants us to have sincere hearts. But the, the truth is, there will be those who do not sincerely believe the Bible, who do not sincerely love Jesus Christ, who do not sincerely believe on Him, do not sincerely trust Him, but will company with us as though they do. They'll come right in among us as though I'm one of you, brother, sister. There's an agenda and a purpose, and our job is not, our goal is not to be focused on those kind of people, but to be aware. We need not be, I believe it's what Jude is dealing with, we need not be spiritually naive. We need not be spiritually naive. There are those, like those who came out of Egypt, who crowd, they, they join the multitude, they join a church, they go along, but they're deceitful in their worship. They present and project themselves as believers when they are not. Number three, they are defiant against his will. So the emphasis in verse 5 on those that come out of Egypt is their disbelief. The emphasis in verse 6 is rebellion. You know what unbelief of God always results in? Rebellion. I don't trust you, so I'm going to do the opposite of what you say. I don't trust your, your will and way for my life. The angels left their first estate, the Bible says, verse 6. God designed for them a place in His creation, a place in the universe. They were not satisfied with it. They left it and came to earth and began to work at deceiving mankind. Verse 6, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. Habitation is a place where they were supposed to dwell. But they left it. They rebelled against God with Satan. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness under the judgment of the great day. Meaning their full judgment's not going to come. They're in a chain now, but their final judgment's not going to come until the great day, speaking of the, the, the tribulation period spoken of and the end of that in the book of Revelation when we read about uh, Satan being deceived and those that were following him being, uh, 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 being judged with him. And so then, the apostate is disbelieving of God's word, deceitful in his worship, defiant against God's will. And I say this, it is, not, it is not ever the will of God for you and I to disobey and rebel against God. And I understand there may be seasons where God has to chasten us and correct us, but whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth. He does. The apostate is committed, committed to disobedience to God. The place that God gives him to be and the, the calling of God, just like the angels of old, he doesn't stay where he belongs He's going to try to exalt himself. He's going to step outside of his boundaries. He's a rebel. And so then the Lord Jesus speaks of this. Again, Matthew 25, 14, that hell is prepared for the devil and his angels. And uh, Luke 10, 18, he saw Satan fall uh, from heaven like lightning and so forth. Uh, so they are not only defiant against his will. Fourthly, they are defiling of God's ways. And we find that in verse 7. Even, so he likens them to the mixed multitude that come out of Egypt, some, the ones that believe not. The angels that kept not their first estate, the emphasis there is on rebellion. Chapter, uh, verse 7, is the emphasis is on uncleanness and defilement. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. There's no doubt he's referring to sodomy in the sins of homosexuality in, in that statement, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. In essence, Jude is saying here, God made an example out of Sodom and Gomorrah to show us what he thinks of that. He, he did, he's not destroyed every city that's given themselves to that, or Las Vegas would be up in smoke already. 
But he did destroy Sodom and Gomorrah to etch in the memory of mankind. That's my view of that kind of defilement. I'll just say this. That lifestyle is, is the epitome of rebellion. I rebel against the way God made me naturally. I, I rebel against his natural design. God designed us differently and there's a rebellion. May I say this? If we know, if we know that's God's view, may I say this? That crowd today is the same crowd promoting effeminacy among men, masculinity among women. This is why it's needful for us to preach on this. You understand, Jude said one of the marks of apostasy is the, the giving over to, to sexual immorality. Fornication first, just loose morals or no morals, no boundaries on that facet of one's life to the extent that we sin against nature itself. Romans 1 deals with the same thing. The seeds of this have been sown long ago. And us as Christians need to understand it is not becoming of us to be influenced by apostates. That's what Jude's dealing with. The apostates should not be telling any of us how to form our values. That's the job of the Holy Spirit of God. I see too many Christians today sympathetic, and I believe they're true believers, but sympathetic to the viewpoints of apostates. They have no say in what we believe. The Word of God has say in that. When you and I begin to give sympathy to apostates, we're on a road of danger and destruction in our Christian life. Not danger of losing your salvation, but danger of shipwreck as a Christian. And Jude is warning them. This is the kind of people you're dealing with. They don't believe God. They rebel against His authority, and it's expressed in their lack of morals. And while we have compassion, let me say something. There's something, an attitude that's crept in among God's people. And it's, it goes something like this. We need to have extended open arms to single mothers, uh, unwed mothers. You say, Pastor, you, should, you don't think so? I do think so if the attitude is right. If it's a single unwed mother who's been living in immorality, her child needs care, yes. But what if she is not repentant of her fornication? then we need to have compassion to a point, but not permissiveness and promotion of sin, or that will destroy that young lady. You with me tonight? And in the name of compassion, I'm afraid one of the greatest promoters of fornication sometimes is churches. You say, are people like that welcome? Absolutely, if they're repentant. If they're repentant. And if they come, we can caring and lovingly and faithfully call them to repentance. But if we're not careful, we become permissive of sin, promoting of sin, and that's what the apostate does. And what happens is, here's what I believe the apostate does. When we call out what God will judge, the apostate immediately says, Foul, you're not loving. Don't let the apostate tell you that. If the Holy Spirit tells you you're not loving and the Holy Spirit tells me I'm not loving, we better shape up and hurry because we are very capable of not being loving. (laughs) And we know it's our duty to love. But may we never confuse love and permissiveness. Amen? They're not the same. Love and tolerance, not the same. Jude here is loving of everybody. And as a result, he's calling to to bear the truth. And so if we're not careful, we allow the apostate who doesn't believe God in the first place, is a rebel against God in the second place, is committed to defiled living in the third place, put the pressure on us to join them in their rebellion against God. And we need to 
Be not partaker of other men's sins, as Paul told Timothy. Uh, That is a duty of ours. And so then, uh, the illumination of these seducers, they're disbelievers of God's word, they're deceitful in their worship, they're defiant against God's will, they're defiling in their ways, and they will be destroyed for their wickedness. God says in verse 4, these turn the grace, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Let me back up. Uh, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Those are present tense men ordained to condemnation because they were disbelievers, because they were defiant, because they were defiled and promoting defilement. He said they're ordained to condemnation. And just, by the way, he gives examples of three groups. The bunch that came out of Egypt didn't believe died in the wilderness. The angels that left their first estate are in chains now under darkness until the last day in that, that great day of judgment. And then Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed. The picture is this. God is not permissive of these men. God is not turning a blind eye. Their condemnation is coming. And, and, and there is a clear distinction between there are those on their way to heaven and those on their way to hell. And those on their way to hell want to influence us as much as they can. We live under the influence of our, of our guide, our teacher, our Lord and Savior, not under the influence of apostasy. Friend, I'm going to tell you something. We need this book in this age we're living in. We are surrounded by apostasy. Men who feign themselves worshipers of God when in their hearts they're rebels. And we need to be aware of it and not take part. And then do, listen, so where, where are we going with this? By the end of the chapter, we need to understand it's our job to try to rescue people from their grip. The apostate is an influencer. And we need to some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear. From who? The apostate. They're wolves. They're, they're emissaries of the devil. They're not servants of God. We need to be aware of that if we're going to live out our Christian lives faithfully.